Good evening. Thank you for tuning in this evening. I want to start with a question. Who was the 38th president of the United States? Now, if you said Leslie Lynch King Jr., then pat yourself on the back because you got it right. Maybe you never heard of President Leslie Lynch King Jr. He was the 38th president of the United States, born in Omaha, Nebraska in 1913. His parents separated 16 days after his birth and were divorced the following December. According to press reports, his father was abusive and had a drinking problem. His mother took him back and moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan, where she later married a paint salesman by the name of Gerald Ford. Mr. Ford adopted Leslie and gave him his own name. Thus, Leslie Lynch King Jr. became Gerald Ford Jr., which would explain why you've probably never heard of President Leslie Lynch King Jr. But here you have one man, one man with two names and two families, just like us. I am one man. Obviously, I have two names, Chris and Christian, and I have had two very different families, one with the world and one with you. And because I gained a new name and a new family at baptism, I have a new hope as well. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. And in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 14, here is what Paul writes. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Now, in Jewish tradition, you may recall that the oldest son, or the one who received the blessing, normally received a double portion of his father's inheritance. In Roman culture, however, a father had the prerogative of giving more to one child than the other. The father could really do whatever he wanted. He had the complete rights over his family. He could kill them all if he wanted to and start over with another family. And it was the power of absolute disposal and control. It was even the power of life and death. And in relation to his father, a Roman son never really came of age. No matter how old he got, he never got out from under his father's thumb. His father had absolute control over him. And so obviously, this made adoption into another family a very difficult and serious step. Now, it's in the inner workings of Roman adoption that Paul is relating to here. This is where he is going to in his mind as he writes these words. In ancient Rome, like today, the Roman family chose the child they wanted to adopt. And as part of the adoption process, there was a special ceremony where the adopting father went to one of the Roman judges and presented a legal case to justify his right to adopt that child and bring him into his own household. This ceremony was called the Vindicatio. And if you notice that word, you notice that it closely resembles an English word that we have 
the word vindicated or vindicate. Now, the standard dictionary defines vindicate as to clear, as from an accusation, imputation, suspicion, or the like. It means to justify. And is that not what our Heavenly Father has done for us? Once the adopted person went through that vindicatio ceremony in Roman culture, he lost all rights with his old family, and he gained all the rights in his new family. He was a legitimate son of his new family, and in the most binding and legal way, he got a new father, and it also followed that he would receive the father's estate, at least a portion of it, even if there were more sons born to the father after adopting this son, it didn't matter. He still would receive his inheritance, and he could not be denied that right. So under law, the old life of the adopted son was completely erased, wiped out, all debts were canceled, and he was regarded as a new person with a new name in a new family. And in the eyes of the law, the adopted son completely and totally belonged to the new family. Now, it's within this context that Paul is making a strong point. God, our Father, took us in. He claimed us as His own. He went first. He paid the price. He canceled all of our debts. And our response to the gospel absolves us of our iniquities and failures. God justifies us. He vindicates us. And we are free to live a new life with a new purpose and a new identity. One of the biggest questions of life is rather existential. It's the question, who am I? Many people through the ages have asked this question. Maybe you've asked this question. Who am I? And our earthly identity comes from the families that we're born into. Our family names identify us, whether it's McCurley, McCoy, Dozier, Sledge, whatever it may be. You think of how important our family name is to our identity. It says everything, right? It's on our driver's license. It's on our checks, our credit cards, and so on and so on. Your name may not reveal everything about you, but it's the primary way in which most of the people in the world identify you. Who are you? Who am I? I'm Chris McCurley. Of course, many people are known not only by their name, but by their accomplishments, their achievements in life, their abilities. To the government, you may not be anything more than a number. To an employer, you may just be another hired hand. To society at large, you're just a face in the crowd. And as we all know, there are people who may know our name, but they don't truly know us. But the one document... That means the most to our identity is what? That's our birth certificate, right? That piece of paper that has our name, that's the official document as to who we are. But we all know that our identity goes even much deeper than that. In truth, our identity is not found in our earthly parents or our earthly exploits. No, our true identity is found in God alone. And as I've said so many times, it's not so much who we are, but whose we are. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 reads like this. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Who am I? I'm a preacher. I'm a father. 
I'm a husband. I'm a college graduate. Yes, but above all else, who am I? I am a child of God. When you are born again, when you are adopted by God, you become His. And what does being His mean? Well, Paul gives a very definitive answer to that in Colossians 3, starting in verse 1, where it reads, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside that old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. All of God's children resemble their father. It's hard to tell them apart because all of them seek and set their minds on things above first. Christ is their life. They have turned away from idolatrous things. They have put aside anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive speech. They do not lie to one another. They put on the new self and they are image bearers of the one who created them. So who are you? Well, you may be a lot of different things to a lot of different people, depending on who's doing the examining. But to those who see you and see your true identity, you are first and foremost a child who bears the image of the Almighty. Really, whether anyone sees that or not, that's who you are and that's what you're expressing. So when someone asks you, what do you do? How do you respond? It's one thing to respond to the question, who am I, by you know, saying I'm an image bearer for God. But what about the other existential question that often gets asked in our culture? So what do you do? Do you say, well, I'm a high school principal. I'm a factory worker, whatever it may be, right? I'm a teacher. Somebody asked me, what do you do? I say, I'm, I'm a preacher. And isn't it interesting that we often respond to the question, what do you do? with the phrase, I am? Is that really our identity? Is what we do who we truly are? I mean, in a sense, that's true, and we shouldn't apologize for that. I can be a child of God while being a principal or a teacher or you know, a, a factory worker or whatever it may be. There is a sense, in which, a sense in which my identity is kind of wrapped up in what I do. And when it comes to being a child of God, who you are is directly linked to what you must do. In other words, your identity is tied to your purpose. Who you are is what you're about. So many folks are asking the question, what is my purpose? And, and related to that question, why am I here? Another existential question. They're great questions. Vital questions. The problem is how we often answer these questions. And we often answer these questions by starting with ourselves rather than starting with God. Many folks go through life limiting their purpose to their chosen endeavor. What they do, they deem as their purpose. And sometimes it's not even what God would have them to do 
They just choose that as their purpose in life and try to fit God into it or make God sign off on it when maybe he doesn't actually. Can you glorify God in your role as a principal, as a teacher, as a a factory worker? Sure you can. And in fact, you should. Can you glorify God as a mother or a father? Absolutely. And in fact, you should. Everything's a ministry. We should glorify God in everything we do. So another major question that we need to ask is, does the path I'm traveling in life allow me to glorify God? It may be that my chosen endeavor, my earthly pursuit, does not allow me to choose God's will and to live out the purpose for my life. I may decide to take a job that makes a lot of money and allows me to provide for my family, but if it pulls me away from my family and away from church and away from my service to God, then I need to find another pursuit, right? It's kind of like the Victoria's Secret model who became a Christian and she reached the realization that... uh, that her chosen profession did not really allow her to glorify God. She tried to justify it at first and say, well, God made this body for me. Why not flaunt what God has done, flaunt his handiwork? But she soon realized that that didn't stack up. Being a lingerie model didn't allow her to glorify God. She came to that realization and she left that profession. Does the path you're traveling in life allow you to glorify God? We have to be careful not to be too narrow in our focus or too selfish when it comes to our purpose. Living purposefully, living intentionally is about being on the same page with God. It's about following His script. Remember, this is never about you anyway. It's not about your purpose as much as it is God's purpose. So the proper question is not what is my purpose, what is God's purpose and how do I fit my life into that? The chief priority and end for our existence here on earth is to glorify God in all that we do. And you ask the question, well, what does that look like? And again, the answer isn't always as difficult as we might suppose. Glorifying God centers around submission to His will, living faithfully, being lovingly obedient. I mean, you remember Solomon? He lived a life of extravagance, indulging in every earthly desire. Then he reached the conclusion that it was all empty and worthless. It was a dead end. The conclusion, he writes, when all has been heard is, fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. We glorify God through fearing him, revering him, respecting him, loving him, keeping his commandments. We strive to be holy as he is holy. Our Lord reiterated this idea that glorifying God and loving God are one and the same when he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Growing up, I think I've told you before, my dad was a crop duster, one of those crazy guys who flies a few inches off the ground so that they can spray a field. And I used to go to the airport or the airstrip, wherever he was flying from, and just watch him for hours, thinking to myself, I want to do that someday. I want to be a pilot. I want to be a crop duster. I had all sorts of model planes at home, and I would fly them around the house imitating my father, wishing for the day that I could actually climb in that cockpit and fulfill the role that he was carrying out. Many youngsters are like that. They they see their mom or dad or someone else in life that they look up to, and they want to do what they did. My son, when he was littler, After a ball game, he'd climb in the truck and he'd ask me, Dad, did I do good? Did I make you proud? Children seek to please their father often. And as God's children, 
We should do the same. We should want to imitate our Father, and we should want to please Him in all that we do. Paul stated it this way in 2 Corinthians 5 and 9, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. Hopefully that is our whole ambition in life, to be pleasing to Him. I read the story not long ago about a man who, who had a heart attack, was rushed to the hospital, and he was in pretty, pretty bad shape but he was expected to make a full recovery. However, because of his tenuous position, he could not have much company and he couldn't get excited. And so the family was concerned because during his stay in the hospital, it was learned that his uncle had died and left him $10 million. How were they going to break the news to him without him getting excited? Yeah, he would be grieving that his uncle passed away, but he'd be much more excited that he had just received $10 million. And so the family, not knowing how to really break it to him and keep the mood somber so he didn't get too excited, asked the preacher to deliver the news. And so the preacher goes in and tries to remain calm, and he tells the man who had just had a heart attack that, look, your, your uncle died, and I know that's, I know that's a terrible loss, um, but he's left you a, a certain sum of money. And the man asked how much. The preacher said, well, it's not much, just, uh, just $10 million. And the man tried to contain his excitement because he knew that wouldn't be good for his health. The preacher asked him, he said, so what do you think you're going to do with that $10 million? And the man said, I probably donate half to the church. And the preacher dropped dead on the spot. <laughs> what would you do if you were told that you stand to inherit $10 million? Well, the truth is, you stand to inherit way more than that. Way more than a trillion or a bazillion dollars. Your inheritance is priceless. It's invaluable. It's worth so much more than you could ever put a price tag on. It's an inheritance like no other. We Christians are sitting on a fortune. We are heirs according to promise. We are no longer slaves, but sons. And if sons, then heirs according to promise. That's Galatians 4 and 7, Galatians 3 and 29. When we think of an heir, we think of one who inherits something, obviously, who is entitled to something something by terms of a will or the estate that is left to them. In the Greek, it's the word uh, kleronomos, and it denotes one who obtains a lot or portion. In Romans 8:17 as well as Galatians 3:29 and Galatians 4 and 7, the word refers to believers in as much as they share in the new order of things to be ushered in at the return of Christ. There's another word, synkleronomos, and it's used in Romans 8:17 in reference to Christians being fellow heirs with Christ. It simply means a joint heir or co-heir. It refers to the children of God being prospective participants with Christ in His glory as recompense for their participation in His sufferings. But what exactly is it that you and I are joint heirs to? What is the inheritance that awaits us as sons of God? Simply put, it's eternity with the Heavenly Father. It's not so much those streets of gold and those gates of pearl or a mansion over the hilltop in that bright land where we never grow old. It's it's eternity with the Heavenly Father. That's the foremost thing about heaven that we should be looking forward to, that we should be homesick for. It's about us orphans getting the ultimate reward, which is being with our Heavenly Father forever. I think I've told you before that growing up, My mother was president of the Humane Society in Greene County, which meant that 
the Humane Society of Greene County was at our house. And at our house, we had a variety of dogs and cats, all of them up for adoption. My mother would run ads in the paper. She would try to advertise so that people would adopt these, these animals. In fact, even the little kittens, she would dress up in little outfits and, and, and run their picture in the paper. Yeah, she was pretty crazy. Anyway, if after a certain period of time, no one adopted these animals, they would have to be put down, have to be euthanized. Because there wasn't enough resources, there wasn't enough food to go around, eventually they would have to be euthanized. That was always a sad day. It was always sad for me because you didn't want to get too attached. But I, I couldn't help but be attached to the solid black cats. Because no one wanted the solid black cats. People would call up and they wanted to adopt a cat and they wanted to adopt a, a, a Siamese or a, a purebred Persian. You know, they didn't realize this is a humane society. We don't have purebred cats. We have strays, we have you know, mutts, but we don't have purebred anything. And I always got attached to the solid black cats because no one wanted a solid black cat. I guess because they were a dime a dozen. Nobody adopted them. They were unique. They weren't unique. They were actually not special at all. People were always on the market for something rare. And so nobody wanted the solid black cats. And so I took to them. You know, God, God looks at us and he says, I want the ones that nobody wants. No one gets passed over. Even the one who's losing their hair, walks with a limp, only has one eye and is named Lucky. God wants them to. Adoption means quite simply taken by choice into a relationship. To take voluntarily as one's own. God looked at you, he looked at me and he said, I want him or I want her. I want you to be a part of my family. You don't have to die. And the adoption papers were drawn up well in advance. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. You know, those outside the family of God must face the reality that they are orphans with no faith and no family. No father. They have no place to call home. No spiritual nourishment. No hope. You imagine that little boy or that little girl who tells the parents who want to adopt them, no thanks, I'll just stay in the orphanage. I'm good. That's what many have said to our Heavenly Father. By their choices, by the life that they are living, maybe even by the exact same words many have said, no to the adoption process but for those who say yes for those who say yes like many of us there's no more emptiness no more loneliness no more hopelessness our heavenly father gives us what every orphan needs a home let's pray our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day, another day to worship you, another day to, 
to be a son or a daughter, and we thank you so much for the opportunity to be a part of your family. We thank you so much that you looked at us and you said, you don't have to die. I want you. I want you for my own. We are so grateful, Lord, to be adopted sons of yours. We are so grateful to have hope and that we can spend eternity with you. Thank you, God. Thank you so much. We love you. May we always seek to please you in all that we do. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.